All right, everybody, welcome to this week's Pixel Drone Show. Today is going to be a, a special episode, and we're going to focus on what drones can do in the world for good and how drones help uh, to save people's lives. And uh, DJI has a number that keeps sticking up uh, as more and more people around the world uh, are being helped and saved by drones. And to discuss more about this topic, who else uh, could we better bring to the table than Romeo Dersher? Uh, I think most people know Romeo from working uh, at DJI for, I think, about six years um, as the Senior Director of Public Safety Integration. He recently moved to Otarian, which is an entirely different company, so we definitely want to ask him some questions about that. Um, and yeah, I mean, let's dive right into it. Romeo, welcome to the show, and can you tell us a little bit about what happened and what made you uh, make this career change, basically? Yeah, so this is this is exciting. I think this is show number six. So I made it into the top 10 first shows. So I'm, I'm excited. Thank you for having me on the program. Um, I'm actually uh, super excited because I've not only watched this particular show, um, some of the previous five episodes, but also, you know, I, I tune into Craig's show quite frequently because there's always very, very good information. Um, one of the latest ones um, about... What does it mean to fly um, over people? Very well um, illustrated yeah. and such an important topic, especially right now. So I'm super excited to be here and I'm looking forward to what we can discuss. Yeah, now a lot of things have um, have happened in the last few months. I mean, if I look back in the last six, six months, personally, a lot has changed. After six years with Yes, the leading manufacturer in the drone industry and really the company that has gotten us to this point, I made the decision to leave and go to a different company. And I joined the Ontarian team and for a very, very good reason, because I wanted to get back to that vision piece I had many, many years ago. Um, DJ really allowed me to, to bring a lot of that vision I had in, in 2013-14 um, you know, to the table and, and we were able as a team to really create technology that has made a big impact. Um, but there were additional things that I wanted to do that I just could not do at DJI and so I made that hard decision to leave and join Altarian and at Altarian I can follow that vision, that passion. And now people may ask, well, what else can there be? I mean, we have reached, you know, the top of the drone industry. Boy, no, we have not. There is so much more. And um, I'm super excited about not only different platforms, working with different drones, working with different concepts, working with a different open platform, open standards, um, a full data integration. And that's really where I think the future will happen and uh, maybe we can talk a little bit more about that uh, uh, throughout this episode what does it really mean the big driver was yeah going back to the vision that i had and fulfilling that piece yeah. And I think uh, Campfire is the one that you have uh, very much inside knowledge of, uh, Romeo. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, natural disasters, it's, it's a very, very good, good opportunity for drone technology to come in and help. And, and we here in California have had some really bad wildfires. And um, I've deployed to three of those fires, including the, the campfire in Paradise, which was just the most devastating uh, wildfire yeah. that you know we've seen in, in a very very long time and it's not just you know using this technology to help save lives rescue lives save buildings but it's also to mitigate the risk to our first responders because it's yeah. about the data the drones are providing us tremendous amount of not only real-time data but then also data that we can process so it becomes actionable data. And by using that data, having that accessibility, decision makers can make much better and smarter decisions that also protect our first responders. And that's a piece that we overlook oftentimes. And it's very difficult to quantify because, you know, 
if if this search and rescue person doesn't get injured because of the drone data how do we how do we measure that but in reality this person may have slipped and fallen down this this cliff because this person may have not seen it but thanks to the drone we had better data to say hey uh, don't go that path because there is a there's a cliff yeah. for example um so those those passive lives saved um we don't often talk about it and they are actually the ones that have an, an even bigger impact because think about it if we can save a firefighter from injury or even from losing his or her life we're not only doing an emotional contribution but we're saving tax dollars because now this individual is not out of service is not um the team is doesn't have to adjust bring in somebody from a different department people that have not worked together perhaps so it has a fiscal impact it has an emotional impact and that is something we just don't talk and see often enough you know this hits home for me uh i live in arizona i actually live in prescott and uh several years ago we lost uh, a crew of hot shots i'm sure you're familiar with the hot shots those are the guys that get deployed in the middle of the fire um, we lost 17 of them in, in a fire. And this is tragic for a, a, a town like, well, it's tragic anywhere, really, not just for our town. But uh, so, and, and of course, back then, this was in 2013, I want to say. Uh, back then, the drones were not being used. And, and I can see them being more and more utilized now with the Forest Service. Uh, at Prescott Airport, we have a big uh, firefighting unit that does this all summer. And uh, and of course, out west, we're, we're devastated by fires a year after year after year. So this really hits home for me what what you have been doing when i came on board uh, in the industry i always heard your name and you're the the public safety guy and and and, and i'm so happy to see you here in person uh you, you have been the reference that so many people have uh, have talked about so uh, my question to you uh, has to do with a little bit of the future down the road drones are being utilized right now drones have limitations in a certain way because they can't really carry too much weight they can't uh, at the moment we can't go too far for too long um, UAM is on my mind for drones and a lot of people are talking about air taxi and carrying people left and right in the middle of crowded cities how do you see UAM being utilized or AAM I think they're called now uh, being utilized in the public safety world maybe picking up someone from the Grand Canyon and bringing them up when they broke their ankle or and they can come back up. What, what do you see with that as a future? That's an interesting question. Um, let me quickly go back to, to the hot shots. There's a team that a couple of years ago I worked with and the, uh, the, the out of the hot shot, you know, world. And these individuals to me are, you know, unspoken heroes that jump out of a perfectly normal airplane into the heart of a wildfire. It's tremendously uh, amazing that, that we have women and men that are that brave for the betterment of, of all, for all of us. And when they get into that situation, the idea was that they have a quick deploy drone with them. Problem is they already have a lot of equipment and now we need to add another piece. But if it's a quick deploy drone that has potentially thermal and visible light capabilities, then they know whether where they are can quickly put this thing up and get situation awareness because where they are seconds count and so every little piece of information helps them to survive and come home that that evening and that's exactly the kind of thing that the drones are so good because we've gotten to the point where they're small enough light enough capable enough that they can go as an additional piece of equipment and help save their lives mm -hmm. now moving into the future you know do you remember um that that 19 i think it was like late 1950s um tv show the jetsons it was a comic show about this futuristic family that you know flying cars and we had rosa the robot that cleans at home um i mean even 50 60 years ago the future looked like flying vehicles with people in it. And uh, 60 years later, well, we're not quite there yet. Um, we, we, we are barely at the brink of self-driving vehicles. And while the technology you know, exists, we do hear of accidents and we hear of fatalities. Until we have not only figured out the technology part, but also the ethical aspect of it. 
because um, when we use autonomy for technology to make decisions, there is a big ethical aspect. For example, in this self-driving vehicle, um, assuming that the, the program is that it has to protect the person or people inside that vehicle, that that's number one priority. So what happens if a child enters the road and this vehicle needs to make a decision? Who is more important, the child or the people inside? What if that child now is an 85-year-old person that is terminally ill? Does that change the value proposition? And those are the ethical questions that also apply to this concept of flying vehicles, because something will go wrong at some point, and then a decision has to be made. Do we crash land? Do we just continue on and crash into this building or into this other plane or whatever the case is? So there's a lot of things that need to properly be thought through before they come to reality. Now, what I do foresee is that in areas of disaster response, unfortunately, the battlefield where we have real opportunities to extract injured or potentially deceased individuals, mm -hmm. there I can see a tremendous opportunity for this technology in, in future years to, to be implemented and, and to make a big impact. Um, for regular everyday life, you know, the aerial taxi, I just don't foresee it happening anytime soon. It's a fantastic, you know, the Jetson future, but it's much more mm -hmm. complex. Yeah, and I think there's so many more applications that we can focus on at first. I, I love what you said about picking up people, uh, you know, air ambulance. I mean, you have an accident somewhere and then you need to have them go directly to the hospital without getting a helicopter involved, which which will take a lot longer than getting just a, a large UAS to come down. I think I, I love that application of UAM. I think this is going to be amazing. So, but yeah, I, I'm with you on the, the priority of things, uh, the, you know, we're going to have to decide which way we're going to go and this is something that in the man aircraft world we already have you know the pilot when you have a crash the pilot goes down with the aircraft and tries to put it in a place that's not going to hurt anyone and now we don't have anyone inside of the aircraft so we're going to have to make a decision but with uam we may have somebody inside of the aircraft that's not piloting so uh hiya yeah all yours yeah i was, I was gonna try to bring it back to, to drones for a second. If we look at the future of drones and how drones can be used to, to help and save people's lives. I mean, we had, we now have drones that are very, very capable. They uh, can fly the distance. They have the transmission quality that we need. They have thermal cameras. Uh, they have enough flight time to, to actually uh, spend quite some time up in the air. Um, and they're affordable by now. Uh, if you look at the future of those kind of drones, and um, you can talk about the Evo or let's say the uh, Mavic uh, to Enterprise Advance, I mean, what are the big hurdles that we now need to overcome uh, looking let's say into the next three four or five years when it's not so much the drone anymore but maybe it's what flying beyond visual line of sight or other regulations or how do we manage the data and process uh imagery uh in real time like what are the kind of hurdles that you see that we need to overcome for for drones to become even more effective as a life-saving tool Yes, and that's exactly that ties into my my vision piece and why I decided to join Autarian because hardware will continue to improve. We have you know capabilities already that are amazing in in a small form factor that for the most part is pretty mm -hmm. affordable. Regulations will continue to improve. Uh, we've we've come pretty far, fairly fast, and we 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 have to understand that we're. Um, you know, working in an environment of a government, government usually never works super fast, and we're operating in 3D space where everything that we decide can potentially have a negative impact on people below it. And so, obviously, regulation is always a little bit behind uh, for sometimes good reasons, other times not so good reasons, but we're making progress. So those two pieces will continue to improve. But what's really, really where we have come to is data. And the data is the new gold or the new oil that, that is so valuable. 
and that's really one of the reasons why I wanted to go into a place where we can really start thinking about the future of data workflows. Because I'm going to tell you this, for consumers, an SD card is perfect. You know, this is, this is mm. what we have growing up since digital cameras came to market. We have SD cards, we take our pictures, we offload them. It's great. For enterprise, it doesn't work anymore. This is like you're out in the desert looking for oil, you're digging, and you have this beautiful oil that now shoots out of the ground, and you are still as poor as 10 minutes ago because that oil is not going nowhere. Now you have to really build the line, the pipes, to get the data to the place where it can be processed. And that's exactly where we are. I am on this quest to introduce the near death of the SD card. And that sounds really horrible, but it is, we got to get away from the SD card if we really want to do scalable enterprise drone deployments. So what does that mean? Well, if anytime I have to take an SD card out and then put it potentially into an adapter and then put it into a laptop and offload it to my laptop hard drive and then upload it to some servers, that's not scalable. And we saw that every single time on our natural disaster deployments, we lost SD cards because they are small, they are not practical. We had hard times getting them out because we had cold hands, we had hot hands, we were sweaty, we were, uh, we were potentially we had wet hands. So that's number one. We got to get away from the SD card concept. If, if we have a fully integrated data pipeline in the background where I take the image and the image without me doing anything goes into my workflow at the other end, and not only that, but then automatically goes into maybe my PIX4D, my ESRI, whatever my end product desire is. Now we're starting to think and talk about really scalable uh, enterprise workflows. And that's what uh, one of our mission is at Altarian to enable this data pipeline that happens in the background on any of the different drones that are Altarian powered. So open standards, any drone manufacturer can manufacture into this ecosystem of Altaria powered drone. Any payload can go on it because it's an open standard and any end solution can be attached to it because there are APIs and suddenly you have a way to replace entire fleets with different aircrafts, different manufacturers, but it's one standard, it's one user interface, it's one data workflow. Now that becomes very interesting to price. I think it was a year and a half or two years ago when I uh, saw one of your presentations about the campfire and a, a lot of it had to do with prepping drones and having this many drones up in the air, this many people flying these drones. But I remember he hearing you say that the biggest challenge was processing thousands and thousands of images as fast as possible so that you get a somewhat up-to-date overview of what the situation on the ground was like. And that, that was my takeaway from your presentation back then, that processing all that data was actually your biggest biggest challenge in that uh, point in time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Carol, <laughs> go on. Oh. No, I have a quick question. Um, I was fortunate enough to interview Dave Sharpin, um, CEO of Otarian quite a few months ago. And at the time you were working with the US government, have you expanded to other governments? Do you plan to? He said he couldn't talk about it yet, but I thought I'd just jump in there and ask. It's been a burning question. So obviously, so we have a government solution entities here in the United States that focuses solely on the, the US government. And the US government, with you know what has happened over the last several months with uh, uh, certain Chinese entities being added to to the entities list um, has now a different need and Alteran is one of the solutions that really meets that need and we will continue to focus on supporting uh, federal U.S. entities across um, the spectrum so that that will continue to happen Obviously, that also awakens the interest of, of other entities and uh, how we are dealing with that uh, in the future, 
we will uh, you know further review but our focus right now really is uh, u.s government u.s entities that have a real big need to maybe switch from those uh, you know manufacturers um, under the ndaa um, structure to to something that's compliant and that's where really Altarian comes in with our various products uh, through different third-party manufacturers that are compliant with those requirements my uh, my next question i want to go back a little bit to what you just said about an entire ecosystem where you're sending data i'm assuming in the cloud somewhere and then the data gets processed off-site uh, somewhere else um, are we at the point now with the current infrastructure where we can actually do this? Because I'm assuming the amount of data you're talking about is not small. And adding to this, where do you see SpaceX um, Starlink system going into play with this? Because I know they're designing the system of, uh, for those of you that are listening that are not familiar, a uh, uh, satellite system all across the, uh, the, 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 the world, really, to get uh, high-speed internet to a lot of people. So tell us more a little bit. Yeah, so th th there's a few different um, components to all of this. So yes, uh, the way Altarian works, and this is very different than, than pretty much any other company in, in this industry. So we, we make one piece of hardware, and that is Skynode. And Skynode is the flight controller that also has a mission computer as well as a connectivity device. So 4G, 5G, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, mesh network, whatever the case is all in one and now a drone manufacturer they can use this flight controller and build the drone around it so that allows the the manufacturer to go to market much quicker with a uh, px4 flight controller pixhawk standard on top of it that also has a payload manager so any of the payloads that are available on this standard can be integrated so it makes life for manufacturers so much simpler. And because we have that connectivity piece in there, now the drone becomes in essence, the device that sends the data to, you know, if it's, if it's 5G to the 5G tower, if, if, if you're doing a, a local, you know, network then to the local network. And that makes a lot of sense. Now you're absolutely right. Um, Oftentimes, especially during a disaster, we may not have good connectivity. And that is something that we will continue to face until we have some sort of solution that either um, is based off the ground solutions like Starlink, where the satellites are in space and you're communicating uh, through there. So if, if there's a wildfire, if there's a hurricane, um, they're not impacted by it. The, the, the satellites are way above that. That, 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 that region, um, or then we, we work with underground networks, mesh network capabilities, so that at least the people in the vicinity get the data immediately, which in most cases, uh, if we talk about disaster response, is what's important, that the, the, the right people on the ground get that information. But the future really is that we, we envision a very in real time data transmission of large data sets to you know maybe the headquarters of the inspection company where engineers are already sitting in front of uh, the Altarian suite looking at the data coming in and saying hey a drone operator this is a perfect shot i see everything i need to see or maybe can you go a little bit more to the right or that i as the engineer can even control the camera from my office when the operator is flying out in the field. So that communication, it is starting to happen. The other piece is, and I keep saying that um, about 80% of an image we take with a drone is of no use. There's only maybe 20% of data in that image that is of importance for us. So if we take a picture of a cell tower, there is all the sky, there is, you know, the structure of the tower, there's the background that is of no importance to us. If we get to the point where we can just take the data that is important to us and put that through the pipeline, we're reducing the amount of data that needs to be transmitted dramatically. So that's why I 
love the fact that we have come to the point where we're putting focus on the data piece, where departments and enterprise entities have realized, wait a second, in order for us to scale up our deployment, we need a much more focused data process. And that to me is super exciting. Oh, it is. I never thought about what you just said, but man, it makes so much sense. I'm really glad that you mentioned that. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, I have a follow-up question, actually, since we're talking a little bit about technology. I want to talk about remote ID a little bit. Last week, we had uh, Loretta Alkali. She, we talked about remote ID, but we didn't talk about remote ID as applied to public safety. What advantages do you see? What kind of benefits do you see coming out of remote ID for, uh, for, for, for public safety? I, I can see one because this is something that, like I said, you know, wildfires are a big thing around here and we see drones flying around uh, during wildfires. And to me, having the ability for the police department or for the, the fire department to see where the person is flying to go stop them, I think that's a, a, a pretty big deal. But do you see any other applications out there for remote ID? Yeah, so, so remote idea, it, it, it is an important piece and I am very much in favor for remote ID because it gives the transparency, it gives the responsibility back also to the operator. Um, I mean, you're, you're driving a vehicle on, on the street, you have a license plate. If, if you, know, you, you run a red light and it takes a picture of you, you, know, you, you, you have to be responsible for it. And similarly to the drone. Now, there's two sides of it when we look at it from a public safety perspective. So let's look in the eyes of maybe law enforcement. And maybe law enforcement has a high risk warrant arrest where they want to utilize drones um, because they want to make sure that this individual or these individuals don't jump out of the window in the backside of the building and go running. So they want to put a, a couple drones up to just secure the area. Now, if they have to have remote ID and I am Romeo, the bad guy inside and I'm, you know, using available technology. Now I suddenly know that, oh, my God, they're out there with drones. That's counterproductive. So from a public safety perspective, um, we also need to make sure that certain operations don't um, or have the opportunity or possibility to turn off remote ID, just like ADSB. When you see a military aircraft, there is no ADSB. Even a Coast Guard uh, don't broadcast on ADSB uh, because exactly of, of that of that concept. Now, if we're on the other side of the fence, um, let's say I'm I'm law enforcement or I'm fire, and we have a secure area, and suddenly our these drones come in. Like we we had th those instances at the wildfires where um, we we deployed UAV tracking technology, um, mostly for us as kind of like a, a, a air control system to see where are all of our drones. But suddenly we picked up a third party drone that was not clear and we were able to mitigate by sending a unit to that location. That was tremendously helpful because what we don't want is we don't want to shut down the, the crude air traffic because they're still actively flying the fire lines, dropping water, um, doing missions. Yeah. And if there is an un, unspecified drone in the area, unidentified drone in the area, they have to shut down uh, their entire operation. And we don't want that. So remote ID has definitely a big opportunity. Um, and another case many years ago, I think it was uh, New Year's of 2018, um, there was a very big interest in securing a couple cities in the United States um, with drone detection technology because um, there was intel that at midnight all a lot of drones would be flying. And so um, thanks to that, we, we, we deployed some technologies and, and, you know, before midnight started to watch the skies. And what was amazing was the amount of drones that were up um, starting at like five minutes before midnight because everybody wanted to film the firework and there are, you know, this is pre-COVID, there's tens of thousands of people in the streets, you know, watching and there are these, you know, from small drones to big heavy lift drones just buzzing overhead in all different directions. And unfortunately, we've come to the point where we also have to think about 
potential danger that comes from these drones um, in a targeted way that these drones are being used to disrupt, to injure or to even uh, kill individuals. So sadly, we have come to the point where remote ID is just becoming another tool to help us be responsible, to help us take ownership and to also protect us from, you know, something that could potentially harm us. Great, Great response. response. I, I totally, totally agree. agree. Yeah. yeah so, so things have moved so fast. It's amazing. It is amazing. And I think with drones becoming uh, more affordable and smaller and at the same time more and more capable, um, I guess an, another interesting question would be, okay, for Atarian to make your system work. I saw on your website that um, for, for part of uh, the system, you guys seem to focus on larger and even some fixed wing drones. Uh, does it also work on, let's say, a Phantom 4 or even a Mavic drone or an Autel Evo drone? Like, can you imply the same uh, systems that you guys are developing at Otarian for smaller, more affordable drones, or is that still more difficult because of the hardware that needs to be added to those uh, unmanned aircraft? The best way to look at it is Apple versus Android. So DJI is Apple, very close system, um, not, no open source, not really any standards. And very very locked down in the way you get access to it to to utilize it and then there is Altarian, which really is the android version so the the operating system is the same no matter if you have a sony phone or if you have a google phone the functionality is the same the apps are the same the user experience you can switch from one manufacturer over to the other and it just feels very very much the same and that's really the premise of it we we want to focus on this open standard and that also allows one very very important piece and that is the standardization of the use so i'll give you an example in in the dji world we have all these different platforms and we learned that there is no one drone that does it all. For certain missions, you need maybe a smaller platform. For other missions, you maybe need something a little larger with different payloads. So there is no one size fits all. The challenge with DJI is that we had one app for this drone, a different app for that drone, and a third app for this drone. And those apps didn't feel the same didn't look the same, didn't operate the same way. And now that makes it extremely difficult to standardize. Now you have to learn every single app. And that is just not very practical, especially for, you know, enterprise where, you know, we are, we are geeks and I, I am a nerd. And of course, I love learning those, those apps because I love drones. But this fireman that becomes a drone operator, he may not have mm -hmm. the same type of love to drones. And for this person, having to learn all these different systems is a pain. Yeah. So on the Atarian side, if I fly a Vantage Robotics Vesper, which is a um, small kind of like a Mavic 2 platform, it's a Blue SUS approved platform. If I fly that one, and then I realized, you know what, I need, I need a VTOL. And I switch over to my quantum robotics, uh, sorry, quantum systems um, a vector, which is a nine foot vertical takeoff and landing drone. I can use the same radio. I can say, use the same interface, the same buttons, and the flight characteristics feel very much the same because it's built on the SkyNote flight controller our Atarian SkyNode flight controller. So the experience going from one to the other is so seamless. And now if the data in the background is as seamless, it changes really the approach that, that we're taking in delivering what is needed for these enterprise entities. You, you guys are like the, uh, the, 
the Airbus of uh, the UAS world where you, you can get a rating on the 319, 320, 321, and then it carries over to a 340. And I mean, it makes sense. It makes total sense to me from a training standpoint. Uh, it makes sense to teach your units on one platform and then it, it cuts across to a small or large drone at 100%. So Kara, I think you had a question. Oh, um, this is cutting into the future, but um, I read a quote from you. Um, Ultimately, drones will lead us to new discoveries here on Earth, which is obvious. We've um, been talking about that and other planets. Now, we saw a helicopter slash drone land um, earlier this month on Mars. But I want you to elaborate a little bit more um, on what discoveries you think are going to happen on other planets, what you think drones are capable of, where the technology is now, and also maybe a decade into the future. That may be a loaded question, but if anyone can answer it, it's you. <laughs> this, this, this is probably one of my favorite topics because it combines my kind of previous life. Before I joined the drone industry, I worked in science and rockets and space exploration had always been a huge, huge passion of mine. And then, of course, today's world, today's life with drones all in one. I mean, the fact that we can talk about this is incredible because think about it. Um, it uh, less than 120 years ago, we had the first powered flight. And then 60 plus years later, we landed on the moon and we brought people safely back to Earth. And today we have a helicopter on a planet in our solar system that has barely any atmosphere compared to what we have here on Earth. And this thing is surviving the most challenging of environments. There is, there is no atmosphere that protects. There is no magnetic field line that protects the surface from solar radiation, galactic radiation, it is cold at night. And this little tiny helicopter survives Martian days and Martian nights, and then gets commands from Earth that take minutes to get there. And it spools up. And despite all of these challenges, it lifts off and it flies around. That piece alone is something where we should be getting chills because that is so freaking cool and if if this doesn't make it cool to you then on this little helicopter is a piece of the original wright brothers plane that flew almost 120 years ago for the very first time and it's now on a different planet flying again i mean that by itself now should should get your hairs on the back of your neck standing up. This is how cool it is. But what can what does it mean besides being cool? Well, what it really means is we have robotics on Mars. We've had robotics on Mars for for a couple decades, uh, if not longer, that, that that have been you know sending us data back to give us a much different understanding of the red planet, and now we can go further we can now start flying and going to places where it would have taken us maybe years to get to and our understanding will grow our capabilities will grow i mean we're we're, we're creating oxygen on 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 mars and what does that mean well eventually we will visit mars as individuals as humans and we have to because we if if we humans are not going to destroy earth first our sun will our sun will get to the point where it's going to burn out and it will not create this you know huge explosion our sun is not large enough to to do that but it will expand and it will change the environment and then it will just collapse and it will definitely kill all life on earth so within the next you know three, four billion years, we got to get off this planet. Otherwise, we will become like dinosaurs. We will be extinct. And so from that perspective, 
having the ability to now roam around from a different perspective on Mars is very similar as the first time I flew a drone here, here at home, I saw my environment from a different perspective. I saw things I had never seen before. I got a very different appreciation and understanding of my surrounding. And that is the, the beautiful thing about science and technology meeting each other and doing things that we never thought would be possible. It's a, it's a very good example. Uh, obviously, the, the drone flying on planet uh, Mars is uh, beyond visual line of sight. Uh, going back to planet Earth, how important is it for first responders to be able to fly their drones beyond visual line of sight? And are there countries around the world where that's uh, already legalized? And how much of a hindrance is it for, for uh, firemen and uh, other search and rescue crews uh, to not be able to fly beyond visual line of sight here in the United States? So. You know, oftentimes when we when we think about beyond visual line of sight, we think distance because that's that's what comes to mind. But it can be as simple as this particular scenario um, in Canada. A few years ago, in the capital city, there was this huge sinkhole. So the, 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 the ground gave away and it just dropped and there was a drone operator from the fire department that flew the drone and he was standing not too far away in a safe distance from the sinkhole. He went inside because they wanted to see what kind of pipes were broken. Is there water? Is there gas? You know, get visualization of how bad is the situation. So now this drone drops below the ground. And now, even though it may only be, you know, 200 feet away from the drone operator, the drone operator cannot see the drone anymore. And guess what? This is already beyond visual line of sight, as it is yeah. in the term. It, you don't see it anymore, even though the distance is 200 feet. And the drone operator got into trouble, even though it was a public safety person. It didn't help that it was right in front of the parliament building in the capital city of Canada. Does it make sense? Well, on the regulatory side, yes. But in practicality, no. Is he going to endanger another aircraft? Well, if, if so, then we have a whole different set of problems. If there is an airplane that low. Um, so there's challenges with that whole beyond visual line of sight. In, in, in the US, there is now a process to, to, to do a tactical beyond visual line of sight, which is a short distance. but exactly that maybe you're around the building around the corner or you have to drop mm -hmm. into a stadium um and for a moment you, you you're not actually seeing the drone and yeah. if there there are some waivers to get that the future will be that we can f deploy these platforms on larger distances um with remote id with uh, uh utm integration um you know it's it's going to happen but for public safety you know, I always say when you come from nothing and suddenly you get something, you are so happy that you have something that is so better than nothing that you don't mind that it's not perfect. And in most mm -hmm. incidents, you fly the drone in a pretty close proximity. Some some variations, hazmat scenarios, you may be, you know, a mile away from the hot zone because you cannot be any closer. It could be hazardous to your health. Um, there, it would potentially be nice to maybe have two mile range, but that may be beyond visual line of sight, depending on what kind of drone you're flying. But for the most part, most public safety operations are conducted easily within um, line of sight. Another example is search and rescue, where you want to cover as much ground as possible. And, you know, if, if life and death is at stake, I will, I, will, I will make this claim that most public safety officials will do a risk assessment and will say, mm. you know what, if I can save this life, I am going to push the boundaries on this particular case because I've yeah. done this risk assessment and go for it and deal with the consequences yeah. later. 
especially when that life can be saved. Is it the best way to go about it? No, it shows that there is still somewhat of a gap in certain situations, what is allowed and what is not allowed. But, you know, life and death always uh, should have a little bit more of a leeway. I have a follow-up on that. Do you know of any, because the U.S., obviously, other than the SGI uh, special waiver that you can get to fly beyond visual line of sight for a very short period of time, do you know of any other countries in the world that have different layers of beyond visual line of sight? Um, not not easy accessible. Um, of course, there are certain countries that... Um, you know, are, are a little bit underdeveloped. That, that's almost like still the wild, wild west. Um, but even those countries are becoming smaller and smaller. Uh, there is more and more regulatory environments being built up. But um, it, it is, it's just not a concept that's easily understood and implemented in a safe way because it is a global issue. And I think mm. if Europe, if the United States finds a, a way to really make that possible, it it could very well become the global standard. Yeah, and I can see, you know, you were talking about having the, the backpack and the firefighters and the hotshots having it all drawn in their backpack. I can see them being in the middle of a fire and having to go see what's going on around the area and easily be out of visual line of sight and still be perfectly safe and saving their lives as well. So that's another great application here where uh, short beyond visual line of sight would totally make sense. Haya, uh, you had a question. Go ahead. Yeah, I have a question. I mean, um, we, we talk a lot about um, first responders and search and rescue crews uh, using drones. And, and of course, uh, in, in our news programs, we, we cover those stories uh, globally. But can you help us uh, give a, uh, get a bit of an understanding of how widespread the uses of drones within fire uh, departments, police departments, search and rescue in the United States? I mean, are, are we actually making progress? Do most of those departments now have drones in their toolkits or are we just still scratching the surface and it's one out of every hundred departments that might have a Mavic in their backpack somewhere? So I think we have made very, very strong progress. Um, to, just to give you some general numbers, there are you know, roughly 40,000 departments in, in the US. And there are about 500 departments that have access to a helicopter or a crewed aircraft. So there's a whole huge market that has no or very little access to a crewed aircraft. And so now drone technology comes to the market and obviously there is a big benefit. But now public safety is a very traditional industry. You know, um, you have fire chiefs, you have police chiefs that have spent their entire career dedicated to the service. And it's a very traditional way of doing things. It's very standardized. And now this disruptive mm -hmm. technology. And in the early days, there were a lot of, uh, you know, fire chiefs and police chiefs that said, you know, I am a few years away from retirement, why would I bring in this toy technology? And, you know, we've done it for 50 years this way. We've done it for 30 years this way. Why change it? But what happened was it was kind of like a grassroots movement where the younger firefighters, the younger police officers have come in and said, hey, we have all this technology here that we could use and implement and figure out and make our jobs efficient more easy, more safe, help the communities and put a lot of pressure within departments to start engaging. And suddenly, you know, you, you, you start using this technology and you show a couple of wins and it changes the mindset. Now, reality also is not every fire incident, not every search and rescue and not every law enforcement incident requires a drone nor does every department need a drone program. But this technology, as well as other technologies that provide us with data, really allow for a different approach and for more transparency, so that we as a community can also feel um, more engaged and more um, visible what our departments are doing. And here in the United States, we. I always say that in the United States, 
if you see a fireman flying a drone, you are happy and applauding. But when you see a police officer flying a drone, you're like, wait a second, what is he doing? He mm. must be looking at one's backyard. That's a very, very cultural phenomena. Um, we don't see it that as much in Europe, although um, even in Europe, there is slight differences between fire and law enforcement, but not as, as distinct as here. So drones can also contribute to that transparency factor. And we see departments that do an amazing job in socializing their drone missions, showcasing why are we using drones. Uh, for example, Marin County Sheriff's Office. Marin County is north of San Francisco, right on the other side of the Golden Gate. Every quarter, they release a document with all their drone flights, where they flew, why they flew, and what was the outcome. And now suddenly, you have a lot of transparency, and that is what's also helping with building community trust. But it really boils down to not everyone, not every citizen, and not every department needs a drone. I have a... Um... I have a personal question for you. Uh, you and I and Haya, we all speak with a funny accent. What brought you to the United States? How did you, did you end up here? And how did you end up in the aviation world? So that all went back um, to, to 1989 uh, when there was the Challenger accident, Space Shuttle Challenger you know, 70 seconds after launch exploded and the entire United States was watching, school children were watching because the first teacher was on board of Challenger. And obviously we were time delayed in, in Switzerland, um, but the next day I saw this and it was devastating yet fascinating that we had this beautiful spaceship that just explodes. And that kind of started my interest in space exploration. And that incident allowed me to start a newspaper. And I was like a little high in Switzerland talking about one topic. And that's uh, why did this ro rocket explode? And I think my viewership was like two people, me and probably uh, somebody else, <laughs> I hope. And I would write letters to now because back then we didn't have Internet. And um, uh, it was it was incredible. Actually, it was 1986. Sorry, not eight, not, not 89. Um, and at the time, it took weeks to get a response back from NASA. But I did, and they would send me documents of the investigation, and I would translate those documents with my very very broken and non-sophisticated scientific english capabilities because we learn all other languages first before english uh, at, at least back then and would then put that in my newspaper and my newspaper would be like three months behind actual time and i guess that's why nobody was reading about it but that's when i decided that someday i want to work on a space project and we do a great a lot of great things in Switzerland, watches and chocolate and cheese and banking, but we don't do space exploration much. So I had the opportunity to move to the U.S. I took it and uh, I got my foot in the door on, uh, on a NASA space project. And I spent almost 13 years doing that. And then I just fell into this whole drone world. And here we are. Wow. What a incredible story i love it kara go ahead are you still based in san jose i thought you were i am based still in san jose. yeah i am still here in san jose the heart of silicon valley um it, i came here for the first time when i was 14 to spend a summer learning english and i fell in love with san jose uh you know it was just so amazing to me that we have all this technology here and these big roads and I knew that someday I would I would move to San Jose and so I did uh, in my early 20s I moved to San Jose and I spent most of my time here in San Jose I lived in Las Vegas for five years um, but was telecommuting back and forth to San Jose so uh, my heart is in not San Francisco but San Jose it's awesome <laughs> 
I used to live in San Francisco, but I can see how San Jose is more appealing, especially for for you, for your background in history. So that's awesome. What is the one thing or maybe one project or one outcome that either at DJI or not or Tyrion that you've worked on that you're the most proud of that that you think has made a big impact in the industry, in the in the public safety world? Which, Which one is that? You know, I've, I've, I've been so, you know, blessed in a way that, that um, I've been able to do so many different projects that have led to many discoveries that have to new technologies, to new drone models. Um, I've, I've been behind um, the, the, the M200, uh, the Mavic 2 Enterprise. Um, I pushed those platforms so hard because of all the lessons learned, um, the, the the case studies, the validation projects we did, the search and rescue study, how, how effective are drones to really validate the use of the technology. There's so many that have contributed. It, it would be hard to, to pick just one. On a personal level, one of the most satisfying project was when when we went to the son dong cave the world largest cave in vietnam Vietnam. with abc good morning america and we did a live broadcast with drones out of the cave system back to the studio in new york and into the households across the united states that was at the time um, 2015 when the technology was nothing like it is today an incredible feast from everyone involved and uh, a, a true adventure that you know has really given me so much personal satisfaction and i met some of the most wonderful friends and people that we are still in touch with today i would say personally that was the most satisfying project seeing now that we are you know saving and rescuing lives across the globe because of a vision and because of people that believed in in my vision that supported my vision and worked with me on it in the industry but also outside the industry um, that is really it feels good and obviously it takes people it takes teams to make that happen it takes individuals like yourself that that help educate that helps share the message and that put your own spin on it to to reach a broader community. So I I, I think it's it's the whole community feeling that is what excites me the most and that I'm I think I'm the most I'm the proudest of that we have established a place where we have this opportunity to share, to educate, to learn from others, um, and to also pinpoint areas where we need improvement and that is that's so that's tremendously uh, great to see you've been you've built an amazing legacy it's uh thank you for that yeah you know i i, I don't I, I have a hard time seeing it that way yes i've been fortunate i've been at the right place at the right moment i've i've had people that listened to me and i think that is the big thing if if you don't listen if you don't try to understand and if you don't try to work together, uh, you, you can't be successful, especially not in an emergency technology that is really as disruptive as, as drone technology is. So I can't, I can't take the full credit. It really takes so many people to make this happen. I just happen to be at the forefront of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we're uh, we're coming up to an hour. Maybe I don't know if there's any other questions, mm-hmm. but uh, one question I wanted to ask you, Romeo, is like the the whole campfire uh, disaster or natural disaster took place in 2018. We're now coming up to another fire season in California, and I read recently that uh, they're expecting with the current drought that it might be a pretty severe one as well. Uh, have you seen? Any areas where we can expect drones to be even uh, used more widely now, or are there new areas where we're going to see drones being used to help fight this uh, this upcoming wildfire season? Yes. So this year, as well as last year, we, we just are starting to hit those perfect storm environments. You know, we have yeah. a pandemic, we have 
a complete disruption in regular operations of public safety, which also include, includes the preparations for fire season. So there, there are large scale pre-burns, controlled burns that happen annually to reduce the fuel in essence. And a lot of that has been disrupted because of the pandemic and because of um, certain technology uh, regulatory impacts like entities ban um, that we are in a very dire situation. And with the drought that is happening in California, we already have two counties that have been declared uh, emergency counties mm -hmm. because of the, uh, we may face another very devastating wildfire season. And obviously using drones um, during an incident and post incident is already great, but the value also comes from the mitigative side ahead of it. So using drone technology to um, map areas to look for where do we need to potentially put ground efforts in to um, you know, cut trees, cut bushes, burn bushes. So vegetation management, um, VTO platforms, those, those, you know, mix between a wing aircraft and a drone that can fly for so much longer flight times than drones, two hours, five hours, depending on platforms. Those are extremely helpful to, to map a lot of these areas and then, you know, send teams in a power line inspection. It's no secret that we have an aging infrastructure here in the United States. And many of the wildfires did originate because of downed power lines. So power line inspection, again, things that can be done yeah. before something happens. That's where we really need to put more effort into it. And then obviously during the wildfire, there are many great ideas on how drones can help um, bring, you know, equipment to the front lines, but those are also still very futuristic. So a, a follow-up question there. I mean, the Department of the Interior had, I think, uh, 810 drones uh, in their fleets. I think it was the biggest uh, government drone fleet in the United States that has been grounded. Uh, how much of an impact does it have that government agencies are not allowed or government departments are not allowed to, to purchase and use Chinese-made drones and certain other drones to help and, and uh, take these preventative measures or even take emergency actions with drones uh, when those emergencies or natural disasters take place? Um, it, it's absolutely a no-brainer that drone technology has helped the Department of Interior uh, to be more effective, more efficient. There is no question about it. Um, you know, we went through a very geopolitical time over the last uh, few years mm -hmm. where a lot of these decisions did make a big impact on not only the Department of Interior, but other departments. And then also on the training side, um, because another thing that needs to happen is a much st more standardized approach when it comes to training. In fact, you know, if a firefighter in San Diego is a drone operator and moves maybe to you know Rhode Island and gets a mm -hmm. job there this this firefighter that is now being hired maybe uh, is hired as a firefighter drone operator but there is no standard so the fire chief doesn't know what kind of qualification this person brings to the table and so part of the department of interior was also a training program that they had established um, to to, to really get standardized in the way we, we, we train for, you know, wildfire uh, deployments, for example. And that, of course, got also disrupted. So, it, yes, it did have a big impact, but it also opened up the market for other companies to come in and, and develop technology that is NDAA compliant to, to help those federal agencies replace the fleet. Unfortunately, what we're also seeing is something that we saw in, in 2015, 2016, and that is that smoke and mirror um, approach where, you know, everybody smells the blood in the water that DJI may not be able to, to 
you know, fulfill certain requirements. So now it's our time to come in and take market share away. And they're over promising mm -hmm. products. And I remember, I think it was 2016 at the inner, inner drone keynote, I called out um, that tactic back then that we got to get the, the industry to a place where, where we do validated information, where we don't say, you know, things that are not true because it doesn't help. It may give you a sale, but it hurts the industry. And unfortunately, we've gotten back to that point where there's a lot of claims being made. Suddenly, you know, these made in USA drones appear that still have components in it that don't meet the NDAA regula regulatory uh, outline um, or that, that drone manufacturers make promises about what their drones can do when in reality uh, it looks differently. It doesn't help the industry. We have to mature and we have to be more responsible. And what it really does is it brings a lot of uncertainty into public safety because these individuals are no drone experts. They are experts in saving your life, in saving your building, in de-escalating situations. They don't know the ins and outs of the drone industry. And if we come in and we overpromise and underdeliver, it hurts every single person and entity in the drone industry. And so that is one of my biggest uh, concerns right now with what is happening, that the, the, the industry oftentimes overpromises and underdelivers. I have that's, one uh, that's a good way. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I had one more question because I always ask it to all of our guests and uh, to finish up uh, a fun question. A favorite drone to fly? <laughs> um, oh, that's a, that's a really good one. Um, so in, in, in 2016, I was really trying to get my previous employer to do a VTOL platform because I was just so fascinated with VTOL. And unfortunately, I wasn't successful. But that, that desire to bring in a VTOL into public safety, into other areas has just stayed with me. And the, the other day, I was able to... Uh, to fly a VTOL, the vector from Quantum Systems, and it was just, it was just incredible. That feeling of seeing this very large platform that packs into a backpack, lift off like a helicopter, like a you know quadcopter, and then nicely transitions into forward flight and just soaring away. It was it was so much fun. It was so impressive, and that has become um, my favorite drone. And, and I'm heading to to Europe um, over the next few days, and I will spend more time with the team on this platform. Uh, hopefully, we'll go to the manufacturer and spend some time with them, because I see so much opportunity in that VTOL concept. And that has become my favorite drone right now. Awesome. Awesome. That's a, that's a great last question and a great answer. Um, it's a Friday afternoon. Uh, thank you so much, Romeo, for spending more than an hour with us on, uh, on the, uh, the Pixel Drone Show. It's been, uh, it's been awesome. It's been a pleasure. And uh, for all of us, I think, to have you on as a guest and super informative. Uh, I think your role in the drone industry is uh, far from done. I think we need more people like you who promote drones. I don't care what brand or what product, but uh, I think there's a lot of, um, how do you say, that? a lot of untapped potential still for drones. So we need people that are passionate and then help, uh, help share this, uh, this message. So thank you again. And um, yeah, have a great weekend. Yeah, thank you, yes, Romeo. Thank you. Thank you.